All right, let's go ahead and begin our class together. <clears throat> I think the uh, that's even a minute behind. It's not only an hour ahead, but it's a minute behind, and uh, it's all right. So, <clears throat> grateful to be here. Nice and sunny outside, and uh, 70 degrees, or approaching that. Tomorrow's supposed to be 70. Getting excited about that, except that it does seem to me that whenever it warms up, somehow it gets colder inside buildings. Am I the only one who experiences this? At the seminary, it seemed cold for some reason. But in any case, I'm excited about that. Now, did everyone receive a set of notes? All right, if, uh, if you did, and they feel a little heftier this time, I want you to notice that whoever prints them, because I don't know who does it, they didn't do the backside. So these are not that much thicker than the other normal notes. Uh, <clears throat> but it gives you extra room so that you can color and, and draw to keep yourself busy while I'm up here rambling, all right? So I'm thankful for the opportunity again to come and uh, proclaim the word here as we uh, continue our series through the, the book of First Peter. Excited about um, jumping back in with you, so let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer and we'll jump right into it. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful that we can read your word, that we have been born in a time period not only in which the Lord Jesus has already come, but also at a time period in which we can have our own copy of the Holy Scriptures, that we can long for this pure spiritual milk and, uh, and satisfy our longing even in our own homes on the drive uh, in so many different ways. We're thankful for it. And I pray that today as we look at these passages of Scripture, thinking about who we are yet once more as believers in your Son and what we should do, help us to embrace these things as uh, good citizens of your kingdom and as individuals who have uh, become born again through the work of your Son. We thank you for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please do open back to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. We left off last time. We were considering the command there at uh, 2 verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If you have indeed tasted that the Lord is good. And uh, the last time we were together, we, we were finishing talking about exactly what that means, that uh, we are to crave the spiritual milk. We talked about it as the Word of God. And that the way in which we cultivate this longing is by, in fact, coming to know the Lord. It's an odd thing, perhaps for some, to initially read, but, he, but Peter is essentially saying that reading the Word 
is tasting the Lord. Reading the word is tasting the Lord. And what does he mean by tasting the Lord? He means by that, that we are experiencing the goodness of the Lord. And this is done by means of reading the word, so that by it you may grow up into salvation, since you've tasted that the Lord is good. So, you know, one of the questions that's sometimes asked is, you know, if what if what if I don't long for the pure spiritual milk? What do I do? And what would you say, according to this passage, what should somebody do who says, I know I should long for the pure spiritual milk. This passage tells me to long for the pure spiritual milk, but I don't. So what do you do? Okay, pray about it. I think that's a helpful thing. Ah, here's the, here's the cyclical pattern. What is it that Peter tells us will make us long for the spiritual milk? He says, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, so you've tasted the Lord is good, what is it that's going to lead you to desire more of it? Uh, You know, uh, let me just maybe perhaps use an analogy for you. Um, For my birthday, just a couple days ago, uh, my wife asked me, what would you like me to make? And of course, the answer was dessert. And so she makes this incredible chocolate eclair. So I asked her to make chocolate eclair. And so then my girls asked me, okay, so dad, what are we having? And I said, chocolate eclair. And they said, what's that? And I could have explained to them, which would have been awkward and hard to, I mean, you know what a chocolate eclair is? I'm not going to, yeah, yeah. I could have, what's that? All right, let's. <laughs> so, so what, what was I going to do? Uh, so I, I did try and explain it to them, but the best thing that I could do was to give it to them. And then guess what? After they had their first taste, guess what they wanted? They wanted another one. They tasted. They saw that it was good. And accordingly... They wanted more. And this is where I encourage people for the word of God too. Uh, you know, again, if it's through the reading of the word that we experience God, and that's what the scripture is telling us, then we need to experience God in order to long for the word. And we long for the word because we've experienced God. And it's this circle, it's this pattern that goes together. And those who've begun to lose the taste need to re-engage the word so that they regain that taste. And understand, yes, this is valuable, this is good, and I long for more of it. So taste and see that the Lord is good. And in doing so, you'll long for the spiritual milk. You know, it's interesting, though. uh, I note here, and and I'm sorry there's no page numbers on this, but it's under uh, E, how do we cultivate this longing? Number one, by tasting that the Lord is good. But then second of all, By ridding ourselves of sinful habits. Now, this is an interesting one because it it doesn't make sense on the surface. How would ridding oneself of sinful habits lead to a longing for the word? But notice chapter 2 verse 1 says this, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes crave the pure spiritual milk. Now, the way the NIV puts this makes it look like those first 
things are commands. Rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy and all envy. But in fact, in the original, it's not a command. It's a participle, which indicates here's the means by which we are to long after the pure spiritual milk. So the, the NASB translates it this way, and I, I think that's probably more accurate in this, in this circumstance. Therefore, ridding yourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and all envy, long for the pure spiritual milk. And the connection, I think, is this. That our abandoning our former ways, because these are the things that are associated with our former life, our abandoning the former ways is necessarily connected to us desiring and pursuing the right ways. These two things are contrary to one another. You can't do both. As Jesus says, you, you can't serve two masters. There's, it's one or the other. Do you want Jesus or do you want your past life? And if you choose your past life, then you're distancing yourself from Jesus. And if you choose Jesus, then you'd start to distance yourself from your past life. Um, did I mention drinking orange juice and brushing my teeth last time? All right, so I, I remember when I, when I was much younger, um, having brushed my teeth and then drank a cup of orange juice and the horrible experience that, that followed that experiment. And, uh, and anyway, so I was preparing for this, I'm teaching this once for my ABF. And I was thinking of how to illustrate the, dis the difference between, um, or, or this, this analogy I think Peter's making here, which is abandon your former way of life and embrace Christ um, so that if you want to embrace Christ, part of what that means or longing after Christ is we have to abandon the former way of life. And using this taste analogy, I was thinking of that illustration. So I thought, you know what? I really need to try again drinking orange juice after I brush my teeth. So, I mean, the sacrifices you make in order to, you know, I'm just telling you. And so I made that sacrifice. I tried it. And indeed, I was reminded it is horrible. Um, there are very few things that uh, contrast so strongly with one another. And maybe you're thinking of something else, but that, that just prominently comes to my mind. You can't enjoy those two things together. And, and I think about that, and I think, I think that that is accurate to what Peter's saying here. That if you choose a lifestyle of envy, of hostility to one another, of of bitter talking, then your love for God will grow cold. Your desire for his word will wane. But to the degree that you desire and actually pursue the Lord, you know him, you experience him, your pursuit and your desire for the things of this world and for the things that used to characterize your life begin to wane. And we're always going one direction or the other. And so the question is, are you willing to, as Peter here says, long for the pure spiritual milk? How do you do it? By tasting that the Lord is good and by abandoning the former way of life that is so inconsistent with the word that if you indulge in it, you will not have a taste for the word. 
It, in fact, perhaps you could put it this way, it destroys your taste buds. You begin to, and this is the deceptiveness of sin, isn't it? Because you begin to live like you used to. And you look over and you're like, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't that great. And what we need to be reminded of is how great Jesus is. Because when we're on this side and we see how great Jesus is, we look back at our old life and we say, you know, that wasn't all that great. I mean, I thought that was, that's what everything was. That's, that's what I lived for. But now I can see that that was foolishness. I don't want to go back there. We talked about this. Paul talked about, or Peter talked about the former life being one of foolishness. That you used to do these things when you were ignorant, but now you've come to knowledge. And the word is that which brings this knowledge. So how do we cultivate a longing for the pure spiritual milk? We do it by tasting that the Lord is good, by actually indulging in the word. But second of all, by putting off these variety of sins that, um, that make us lessen in our desire for the word. All right, so that's two, one to three, pursuing the milk of the word. Any comments or questions on that section before we go on to two, four to eight? All right, so let's take a look at this analogy that Jesus is about to, or that Peter's going to give that actually develops out of what Jesus has said. He says this in 2.4. We'll, we'll read down from 2.4 to 2.8. He says this, as you come to him, the living stone. Now to him, it's referring back to Jesus. Long for the pure spiritual milk, uh, that you've tasted that the Lord is good. And now he says, as you come to him, that is to the Lord, he is the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for in scripture it says see I am laying in Zion a stone a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. All right, so a lot packed into... Uh, just four verses here. So let's begin to unpack them. Up to this point, what would you say has been Peter's main analogy he's been using? He's used a number of them, but what's the main one that, that we've seen all the way from 1-3 is the first mention of it all the way through? Okay, well, that's what he's about to get into. Birth. Yeah, new birth. New birth. We've been born again into a new family. But now Peter's going to shift the analogy. He loves analogies. And I love analogies. So it's a great fit. Uh, but he loves analogies. And now he's going to transfer from this view of us as a family unit, uh, being born again into a new family with an inheritance, all those sorts of things. He's going to transition that into an analogy of a building. But not just a building, but also a building which is a temple 
And we're going to not only be stones in the temple, but we're going to be priests inside the temple. And you say, well, that sounds confusing. Yep. <laughs> so let's dig into it. All right. So he begins again, as you come to him, the living stone. So the suggestion here is that you as believers have come to Jesus. He's then called a living stone. A living stone. What does it mean Jesus is a living stone? Now, Peter may be using the word living here in an ironic way to refer to the fact that he had died, but now he's brought back to life. He's a living stone. And if that's what he's doing, then that's consistent with what you saw a little bit earlier when Paul or when Peter uh, talked about us as having a living hope, a hope of life, yes, but a hope that's alive. And in the same way, Jesus here is a living stone. But I think the analogy here is broader than that. He's referring to Jesus as one who is like a stone, but unlike a stone in that he is alive. So he's using this building analogy, but he wants to say that the building isn't just this dead building that God has put together, but actually something that is moving, something that is alive with energy. Is this the only time in Scripture that Jesus is referred to as a stone? Oh, yes, much farther back. And the idea that Jesus would be a stone comes actually from the Old Testament. Not merely the New Testament. Obviously, it's repeated a number of times here in the New Testament. But we actually see this all the way back in Isaiah 8.14. If you have the notes there, you'll see uh, I, I put there LXX Isaiah 8. LXX simply stands for the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's quite evident that when Peter quoted from the Old Testament, he was quoting from the Greek rather than the Hebrew. So, in any case, here's uh, Septuagint, Isaiah 8.14. If you trust in him, this is talking about uh, the coming Messiah. If you trust in him, he will become your holy precinct. And you will not encounter him as a stumbling caused by a stone, nor as a fall caused by a rock. So here's what Isaiah 8.14 is saying. It, depending on your relationship to this stone, this foundation stone that, G, that God is going to plant, he's going to bring, depending on your relationship to him, if you trust in him, he will actually provide shelter for you. He'll be a rock that like you read throughout uh, the book of Psalms, for instance, he's a rock, uh, a shelter in the time of storm, right? He's going to be a rock that you can secure yourself on, that you can hide yourself in. But if you do not, trust in him, then what will he be? He will be like a stone that you stumble over and one that causes a fall. And uh, <clears throat> now we, we, we understand this, uh, especially in, uh, in the ancient world, most of the roads were simply big rocks that they went out and put on the road to try and make something uh, less than just a mud patch. Uh, I would think that they resemble very much like our roads out there uh, here in Michigan. Uh, but, but they wouldn't be very even. They would have jag, you know, you, you could easily, as you're walking, trip over a stone and fall down. 
And so the analogy is quite evident here. Further, you also have the idea of a stone being, you know, you could dig into a stone or some stones that have an overhang in t at a time of storm. You would shelter in that place. So both analogies are rich and powerful analogies. Jesus is a stone and how you respond to him determines whether it's he's a good stone or a bad stone. Isaiah 28, 16. <clears throat> Therefore, thus says the Lord, See, I will lay for the foundations of Zion a precious choice stone, a highly valued cornerstone for its foundations, that is, for its lower level. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, what's interesting, if you were listening to Isaiah 14 and 28, 16, the very words that it's talking about here, he's a precious choice stone, a chosen stone. That's what I, Peter just said about Jesus. He's highly valued for its foundations. Uh, one of uh, the, I, I mentioned that I have a trip coming up to Israel uh, in a couple of months. I'm really excited about that. One of the things that impressed me the last time I was in Israel, and this was some 15 years ago, um, the last time I was in Israel, one of the things that really impressed me is that there are some lower levels of the temple that are actually still standing uh, or the, the, the very base layer, uh, some, some stones that were put there by Herod the Great. And you can go and, uh, and they, they have a tour that you can go on where you go into these lower levels and you see these stones that are, you know, from the ground up to about here. And, you know, from that chair, perhaps all the way to here, just one big block, a massive stone. And it's, it's chiseled into perfection, and it's a choice stone. This is the type of stone you want to build your house on, right? Because it's not going anywhere. And as we think about that, that's the analogy that Isaiah 28, 16 says. See, I'm going to lay a stone... And it's going to be a foundation stone and it's going to be a precious choice stone, a highly valued cornerstone. Not only is it going to be a stone for a foundation, but it's going to be the cornerstone. It's going to be the stone that determines how the rest of the building is going to be built. Its dimensions determine everything for the building. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. If we combine Isaiah 28 with Isaiah 8 then, I'm going to choose this precious cornerstone and I'm going to plant him. And then whoever trusts in him will not be put to shame. In fact, the one who trusts in him, will he will become a precinct or a shelter for him. But if he does not trust in him, he will be rejected. And then one other passage in, in the Old Testament in reference to the stone passages is Psalm 117. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So this is Psalm 117 in the middle of one of these Messianic Psalms. Uh, God tells us that this stone is going to be rejected by the builders. Well, who exactly are these builders? Within the context, the builders are the Jewish leadership. The ones who should be building up the kingdom. And they're going to look for the cornerstone. They're going to be looking for the Messiah to come. But here's what the psalm says. When the Messiah comes, 
they will reject him. The stone the builders rejected, this one becomes the cornerstone. Interestingly then, coming back to 1 Peter, he says, you come to him, a living stone rejected by humans. Rejected by humans. Rejected by the builders. And now Paul, Peter is expanding the referent. It's not merely rejected by the Jewish leadership, but it's rejected by humanity as a whole. This cornerstone is. But nevertheless, he's chosen by God and precious or valuable to him. Now, this, these stone metaphors then and do not merely end with the Old Testament. We see them picked up in the New Testament. Look with me again on this page, Matthew 21, 42. And Jesus, as he's walking on this earth, says, to this, says this, Have you never read the scriptures? He's talking to the Jewish leadership. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is asking them, have you never read this? Acts chapter 4 verse 11 says this about Jesus. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So here's what the Old Testament says. The builders are going to reject him and nevertheless he's going to become the cornerstone. Uh, Jesus, as he's, as he's there at the temple, talking to, to the Jewish leadership, he says to them, Essentially, you're going to reject me uh, because it's what the scripture says. And then Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, this is Acts chapter 4. Um, this is Peter speaking before the great uh, Sanhedrin as well as other Jewish leaders there. And he says to them, you by wicked hands have taken the Messiah and crucified. But he also says this, this stone, Jesus, he was rejected by you. But now he has become the cornerstone. It is just as God predicted in the Old Testament would take place. Now, now Peter's not the only one then who, who emphasizes this. Paul does so as well in Romans 9. He says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul, like Peter, takes these passages, applies them to Jesus, and says that Jesus becomes a rock of offense. That word for offend there doesn't mean a rock who offends, oh, I can't believe it, but a rock that actually causes someone to stumble and fall. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame Paul says. So Paul says, look, this rock is one that either you stumble over or you don't be put to shame because you trust in him. And then Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, Paul tells the church, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, but Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Paul puts it this way. Paul says, prophets, apostles, 
These are bricks that God is using to build his foundation, to build his, his church. But there's a cornerstone underneath them. The foundation layer is Jesus. Above them is the prophets and the apostles. And if we could continue the analogy, we'd say that um, perhaps the Lord uses today pastors and teachers in his, in his labor. Uh, part of the reason, by the way, that we would argue that uh, the gifts of prophethood and the gift of apostleship no longer exists today is uh, partly because they clearly don't. <laughs> but second of all, because um, the foundation layer of the church has already been laid. And that's what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2, that these are uh, the foundation layer itself is Jesus, but then on top of that is built the next layer, the next important layer, the prophets and the apostles, and then on top of them is built the rest. So... <clears throat> Peter here then is stepping into this same mold, thinking about the stone passages, and he's answering the question for us, how is Jesus the living stone? And what does that mean for us? Now, he notes here that Jesus was rejected by men or rejected by humanity. And of course, this reflects both the experience of the psalm writer He's going to be rejected, but also the experience of Jesus and the early apostles. I think importantly, though, this coincides with us. Because notice that rejected by humans, but chosen by God sounds a lot like elect exile, doesn't it? As we've been trying to emphasize that theme from 1 Peter, we are elect, chosen by God. Exiles, rejected by humanity. What is Jesus? Rejected by men, chosen by God. Notice then the second element, chosen by God and precious to him. This language of precious to him is debated in terms of the way it should be translated. Because the, the word can actually mean it's precious. It can mean it's valuable, like costly. And it can mean honorable. Now, the reason that those three things are Three different, way, three, three different translations, they're, they're intricately connected because the thing that's valuable is the thing that's useful and honorable in the ancient world. So it's debated how best to translate this. I think perhaps honored is the best choice here because it's chosen by God and honorable to him. It could be it's precious to him um, there's some debate on how to translate that. The NIV here takes it precious to him, and that's, that's a fine translation. It is valuable and honorable and therefore worth something. It's, 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 um, it's not only precious, but valuable. Notice then how Paul or Peter switches this then. So here's what Jesus is. But then notice verse 5. You also. So what was Jesus? He was the living stone. And now you also. So what are we? 
Well, I think what he's saying is, you also like living stones. So Jesus was a living stone built on the foundation, but you now are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. You know, that passage we were looking at earlier with, math, with Jesus standing at the temple talking about how he's going to be rejected. He also talks about in that same broad context, the fact that he's going to destroy that temple or the temple's going to be destroyed. And in three days, he's going to raise it up. And they, of course, think he's talking about the physical temple. He's talking about the temple of his body. But I think that's the analogy that's being portrayed here because we no longer go worship in a physical temple, do we? I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to go to the Temple Mount and I can worship there just as easily as I can worship here. This is what Jesus told the woman at the well. <laughs> yes, that's true. You won't, uh, you won't be concerned about the Muslim mosque and all that that's up there, yes. But it doesn't matter where we're at anymore. Why is that? Because the temple is no longer a central place. Instead, the house of God, because that's what the temple was. It was a, it was a building in which... God's presence came to dwell among his people. That's why the Shekinah glory came down and rested upon it. Interestingly, did you know that John's gospel begins this way? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, it continues on, and it says, and the word came and tabernacled among us. That's the word it used. Now, a lot of times we translate it and dwelt among us, but it's the word for tabernacle. So in other words, the tabernacle came to live with us. The Shekinah glory was in Christ and he was with us. And now Jesus being raised from the dead is a living stone in the true temple, the true presence of God. But Peter's point here is that he's not simply a temple that's distinct from his people, but instead his people are joining him to build together a temple for their God, a temple for the Spirit. And so you, like Jesus, are living stones being built into a spiritual house. The analogy of the church as a building is quite common in Scripture. I've got a number of references there. And I think the analogy proceeds like this. Jesus is the cornerstone, and he gives life to believers who are then placed as living stones within the church to do various functions. So we know what the function of the prophet and the apostle was. The apostle was one of the early church individuals who heard from the Lord Jesus himself, who was there for him. They were the, uh, the guarantees of the tradition that were being handed around. The prophets were those that God specifically spoke to, that they would proclaim the message to others. But I would dare say that what Jesus is doing is he's building other bricks. You know, maybe not on that level, but up here. And maybe we're a little smaller than the rest of them, all right? And so <clears throat> I'm also in this temple. And I may not have the gift of prophethood or apostle, but I've got some gift something that God's given to me that's designed to be used within this temple for the purposes of worshiping God. 
And, and so I think the analogy is a really powerful one because it, it tells us this. Every one of us has a place in the temple. Every one of us. And God has crafted. I mean, just think the analogy of the cornerstone is that there's a, there's a chosen stone. And uh, it's, it's not like somebody just was walking along one day and said, oh, look, at, there's a nice stone. Well, let's use that as the cornerstone. No, they went in search for the stone, right? And when they found it, they knew that was the stone they needed to build the temple. <clears throat> that was Jesus. He's unique. And then you've got choice stones that go above that, and, and they're carefully crafted. Uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you want to waste hours and hours of your life, go watch some of these documentaries on early stone carvings, like how they, how they carved rocks and, and made them into squares. Uh, they, we actually have no clue how they did it. It's really fascinating. Uh, they were quite capable of doing things that we with our machines apparently are not quite as capable of doing. Weird, weird. So they had technology we don't have. Now, I'm not suggesting they had machines. But they knew something about how to cut stones that we don't. In any case, it's quite fascinating. You look at early Egypt and, and elsewhere. And no, I don't think it was aliens. All right, so if, if that's where, where you were thinking, all right. <clears throat> so, um, so they would fashion these stones so that they would fit neatly within the, within the building that they were making. Um, See, there you go. That's nice. But the analogy then is this, that God, when he chooses us, he then shapes and fashions us for a specific place within his temple, within his church body, more broadly, within the, the church universal, but then the church particular, our individual church, so that we fit in a place and we have a place and we've got gifts that help with the broader church. And I, I think that's just a really encouraging uh, analogy that Peter is drawing out here. Jesus is specifically chosen, but so are you. You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Notice the next thing we are to be, we are being built into a spiritual house with the purpose of becoming a holy priesthood. Now, this is where I said that the analogy becomes a little convoluted and and doubled up on us because, <clears throat> wait a second, are we the temple or are we the priests inside the temple? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's both. It's one of these, these questions that, uh, you know, these teachers, they love to ask. Have you, ever, have you ever had a multiple choice question where it said A, B, or a and B? Teachers, I tell you. You can't trust those guys. Yes, go ahead. So in this analogy, mm -hmm. we can say that the group of believers is a, are a stone or the temple? Or yeah, I think that... We are the temple as indwelling with, with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Individual, we are a yeah, I think so. So... 
Um, there's an analogy used in the scripture, 1 Corinthians, that talks about us as temples of the Holy Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Therefore, we can make the analogy that, like the temple, he's come to dwell in us. Uh, but then the analogy that's being used here, and I think in other passages, is that the church itself is a temple that's being built up. And so, uh, you know, the, the question is, is he talking about the universal church? Is he talking about particular local church assemblies? And I think the analogy can be pushed either way in that. Because, um, you know, for our local church assembly, God's crafted you and your gifts and placed you here for such a time as this. Uh, but that's the same, that's, that's true of the universal church as well. Very good question. Yeah, go ahead. This passage is the longest consideration. Yeah, First uh, Peter two four to ten. Oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, I, I didn't clarify that, but yeah. So, so though various other passages talk about the stones, the stone idea, this is the uh, longest consideration of it in the New Testament, in the whole Bible. All right, so we are being built also to become a holy priesthood. Uh, they're holy. So we are a holy priesthood. That means we are sanctified, set apart. That's what the language of holy means, to be set apart. God chooses us and separates us from the rest of humanity. This is what God did for the Levites. He separated them from their brothers and said, you are set apart for my special use. And this is what it's saying about believers. You as a believer, are set apart from humanity for special use by God. We're chosen for special use. That their priests, that we are priests, aligns with the statement in the Old Testament that God's people were a holy priesthood. Isaiah 61.6 says this very thing. Now, I'm going to suggest that that doesn't mean that we are Israel, but rather we are inheriting promises very similar to Israel because we, like them, are the people of God. So why does he make us spiritual priests or holy priests? Well, he, said, he gives us an answer to that. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So one of the things that uh, helps us to think about the role of uh, various people in the Old Testament, the, <clears throat> the prophet was to represent God before man. Because he would receive from God a word and he would then proclaim to men that word. The priest, on the other hand, represented men to God. Because people would come to the priest, offer their sacrifices, uh, and, and ask for the sacrifice to be offered, and the priest would aid that individual in uh, coming to the Lord, and uh, they were in many ways that go-between. Now, what the Scripture is telling us here, though, is that we are all priests. Uh, that's Peter's point. We are a holy priesthood. Do you need a priest to enter into God's presence? You don't. 
And this is the great heresy of the Roman Catholic Church. That in order to come to God, I have to go to Father so-and-so. That he would be the go-between between me and God. But Scripture said that the veil was torn. Scripture tells me that I have access into the very throne room of God. I do. I don't need somebody else to take me there. But that Jesus Christ himself, who is our great high priest, he is the intercessor between me and God. And he has widely opened the door and welcomed me in. So we are spiritual, or we are priests. And we are now... Because we are priests, we can directly go to the Lord. We can offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, why does he call it spiritual sacrifices? Well, perhaps this is distinguishing it from the fact that we're not offering uh, goats and bulls. And uh, I'm thankful for that. I struggle killing spiders. (laughs) So uh, the idea of killing an an innocent lamb here, I think that that would be a challenge for me. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't go hunting because I'm just not sure I could pull the trigger. But give me that beef, give me that jerky and I'll eat it all day long. All right. So I just, you know, that, that gap between there, I'm just, I just, but here's what Peter's saying. We don't offer physical sacrifices. We offer spiritual sacrifices. So what do you think these spiritual sacrifices are? Well, note with me, you may already know this passage because it's one that's quite well known. Romans 12.1. Let me quote it for you here from the, e, from the NIV. Paul says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in light of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, Paul clearly is not saying, offer your body as a sacrifice, go kill yourself. That's why he says, living sacrifice. You're to be continually living, but you are to offer it as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do you know what Paul, Peter, Peter just said? We are made to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. So what kind of sacrifices is he talking about? Spiritual sacrifices. And one of those spiritual sacrifices is my body. Now, that isn't, he's not saying, you know, um, anything grotesque. He's simply saying, how do I use my body? Which means, what do I do with my time, with my energy? All all that uh, pertains to what Paul is saying by... um, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the purpose of our redemption. What else is sacrifice? Hebrews 13, 15. Let's take a look there. Hebrews 13, 15, just a few pages back. Here's what uh, the author of Hebrews says. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of Praise, a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So our sacrifice doesn't necessarily have to be with 
you know, our time and that sort of thing. It could simply be with our mouth. We sacrifice by thanking Him. A sacrifice of praise. Because remember, a lot of the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, you didn't actually, so you obviously had the sin sacrifices. Those are the ones we automatically think about. But read through Leviticus sometimes. Sometime. And what you'll find is that there are all kinds of sacrifices that the Jewish people would bring to God simply because they were thankful to God for what he's done. We don't have to do that anymore. But in some ways, because it's become so easy, I wonder if we do it enough. <laughs> right? Do we just come to the Lord and say, Lord, today I would like to just spend some time offering you a sacrifice of praise to your name for who you are. So, again, this is why we've been redeemed. Um, notice Philippians chapter 2. And this is Paul's literature here back in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 7. Um, oh, wait a second. That's not the right passage. Maybe it's 3 7. Yeah, maybe it's not that. But let's take a look at 418, all right? Um, because this one's related to, I, I know what, it, it was about finances, and I think the same thing pertains to 418. He says this, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They, the gifts you sent, are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. So here's the Philippian church. Do you know what they did? They saw Paul in financial need and they sent him money. And you know what Paul says? That was a spiritual sacrifice pleasing to God. So what are ways, I mean, basically the bottom line is this, as the New Testament talks about sacrifices, for believers, it's no longer going to the temple and offering some animal, these sorts of things. The sacrifices are the fruit of my lips, praising the Lord. The sacrifices are my feet and my hands doing the work of God. The sacrifices are me putting my hand in my back pocket and saying, I have more than I need for today. So how can I be a blessing to God's people in need or to those who do not have? All of these are spiritual sacrifices that are don't miss this, pleasing to God. Isn't that incredible? That the scripture tells us we can please God. I remember, remember when I was a, a faculty member at Maranatha Baptist University in Wisconsin, a student came to me and he was a little uh, perturbed because uh, the president of the institution had made a comment in chapel that God smiled at some act. And he thought that that was um, problematic, that, uh, you know, God maybe that wasn't characteristic of who God was. And, and I thought that, that that was actually quite accurate, that, in fact, there's a sense in which God is very well pleased, happy with uh, the response of his people who offer sacrifices of praise who offer sacrifices of finance and who offer sacrifices of, of their bodily energies. And so, here's what God is doing. 
He's making a church. He's building a church. He's laid the foundation and then he laid a second layer of foundation and now he's building upon it various stones. You're the stones. Specifically chiseled and chosen for this period of time in this place. And he's put you there. And now that you're there, you're in this building, you are a priest of God. Access to him and he asks you to make sacrifices in these various ways to him that he would be pleased through Jesus Christ. So everything just comes through Jesus Christ. The centrality of Jesus is everywhere in this passage. All right, so any questions then on, on the analogies? There's two being built here. The analogy that we are the temple of God. Second of all, that we are priests in that same temple uh, offering sacrifices of praise to God. <clears throat> Man, everything's just that clear. Okay. That or everybody's asleep. I can't tell which one, but we'll just keep going like not everyone's asleep. All right. <clears throat> okay. So then notice what he says in verse six, because now he ties it back to the Old Testament. And Peter has a real penchant for doing this. He really loves establishing the truths that he mentions in Scripture. And so his source of authority is the Scripture. It's interesting how he quotes the scripture because he says, for in scripture, it stands. Uh, the, the language here actually highlights something that was stated, but has ongoing consequences. So this is what the scripture said, and it still has a bearing for today. I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In the Old Testament, the statement, I lay in Zion a stone, was a present statement. Interestingly, in the book of Isaiah, it was, I lay in Zion a stone. But he had not yet laid in Zion a stone, had he, in the book of Isaiah. So sometimes in the Old Testament, a future verb or a present verb would be used to refer to a future activity because of how certain it was going to be that it was going to come to pass. And yet when Peter quotes it, it's no longer a future event, but it is a present reality. He has, in fact, laid in Zion a stone. Zion, by the way, is the temple mount. And so when he says, I lay in Zion a stone, you are to read this as, I'm laying a new foundation for a new temple. Because Zion is Mount Zion, the, the temple mount. And this is the reason why Jesus quotes this language right when he's standing at the temple talking about the fact that it's going to be cast down because a new temple is going to be built, but it's not going to be a temple like the old temple. Uh, then we talked about the chosen in cornerstone, the one believing in him will never be put to shame. Let's look down in verse 7 and 8 then. And, uh, and we'll have to end our time here on verses 7 to 8 on this last page. Notice how he concludes this section then. Now to you who believe, Peter says, this stone is precious. Notice that. To you who believe, you view Jesus the same way the Father views Jesus. Because remember earlier, Jesus is rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 
But to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, well, the stone the builders rejected has indeed become the cornerstone, and he's become a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So, what exactly does this mean? Well, first of all, note that the, to you who believe the stone is precious or the stone is honorable. And I think one of the main principles that Peter wants us to understand is this, that if you've chosen Christ, you will never experience ultimate dishonor. Remember a couple of passages there. Those who believe in him will never be put to shame. Now, does that mean that we won't experience some periods of dishonor in this life? No, well, clearly we will. Did Jesus experience that? Yes. Will we experience that? Yes. But was Jesus ultimately dishonored? No. In fact, he was honored above every name. And so those who like him, follow in his footsteps, will likewise never experience shame. But the ones who do not believe, and I think this is really critical for Peter's audience. Because remember, Peter's audience is going through through persecution. Uh, they're being rejected by their own countrymen. And it's important for them to hear that those seeking to bring shame to them will in fact be the ones experiencing the shame ultimately. But the ones not believing, Peter says, well, despite the rejection of Jesus, he's still become the cornerstone. And this stone the builders rejected, well, it's become a stone that causes people to stumble and it causes people to fall. Now, the controversy comes at this last statement. They stumble because they disobey the message. That's not very controversial. That makes sense. But then that last statement, which is also what they were destined for. So let's think about this for a moment. First, the clause, they stumble because they disobey the word. So why is it that unbelievers stumble over Jesus, the rock that God has established? It's because of this. They do not believe the word of God. They do not believe what he has taught. And this is really important for Peter's audience because some of these people are Jews. The original builders were Jews, right? And they rejected Jesus. Why did they reject Jesus? It wasn't because they were obedient to the word, right? Because that's what they would like to claim. Well, we rejected Jesus because we're honoring the Mosaic law. And Peter says, don't buy it for a moment. They reject Jesus because they disobey the word. Remember, there's a tight connection between Jesus and the word. You read the word, you experience Jesus. You trust the, you trust the word, you trust Jesus. They reject because they disobey the word. And so since they didn't love the word, they don't love Jesus. They disobey the word. All right, but then 
notice this, into which also they were destined or which is also what they were destined for. Now, the reason this is controversial is because it seems to be a passage that might defend the claim that God not only chooses some to salvation, but he also chooses some to damnation. And there are uh, theologians on both sides of this. Some say, yes, that's accurate. Others say, no, God's choice is essentially this. All of mankind is running as fast as they can towards a cliff and God turns some of them around. And in turning some of them around, he leaves the others to continue running their race towards ultimate damnation. Um, Others say, no, no, in fact... Jesus, or no, in fact, God puts them on both sides, some going that direction, some going this direction. And this passage is a central component of that debate because what does it mean, which is also what they were destined for? What were they destined for? There's two options to answer that question. Some say they were destined to stumble. Some say they were destined to disobey the message. Because that relative clause could refer to either one of them. And here's the importance of answering that question. If they were destined to stumble, then all it's saying is, whoever disobeys the word was destined to stumble. And God didn't choose who would disobey the word, uh, you know, actively choose them. And so therefore, all this passage is saying is, it is a truism that whoever rejects the word is destined to stumble over the stone. On the other side are those who say, no, in fact, what they were destined for was disobedience. They were destined to disobey, and accordingly they trip over the stone because they were destined to obey. Now, I could make an argument for either way here. I've tended to find historically uh, the idea that uh, what What Peter is saying here is that truism that those who disobey the word are destined to stumble over Christ. Because if you don't love the word, if you don't pursue the word, what's going to happen when you experience Christ? Are you going to embrace him or are you going to actually fall over and be destroyed by by that meeting? And I think the answer is those who reject the truth of the scriptures ultimately reject Christ, and those who ultimately reject Christ reject the only thing that could save them. So it's a beautiful thing, you know, here's what you've got to plan, is make your most controversial statements at the very end of a time period, and then just say, I'm so sorry, I would love to answer more questions, but we're out of time. No, in all seriousness, though, next time we come together, if you have a question on that, I am more than willing to talk about it, or you can stay after. Um, and we're now officially a week behind. So we'll get into 2, 9 to 17 uh, next time. <laughs> all right, thank you all.